This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. All right, let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and thank you uh, for choosing to spend your time with us this afternoon. Uh, it really is wonderful to see that we have such a highly engaged community here in San Diego. And now that we're virtual, even beyond San Diego, who are really interested in the research that we're doing. Uh, Danielle, I, I appreciate the introduction. I'm delighted to be working with you and others involved with the Stein Institute uh, for Research on Aging. So my goal for this seminar for the next 45 minutes or so is to provide a broad overview of gerontology research including some of my own perspectives of what our goals can be or should be. I'm going to introduce some new concepts, uh, including the geroscience hypothesis. Uh, some of you may have heard this term before, and that's what brought you here. Uh, or maybe you haven't heard this term before, and you're joining us to learn more. Uh, I'm also going to review some of the work being undertaken by my team uh, and how we hope to contribute to the field uh, in efforts to promote healthy aging. Uh, so with that, I'm going to start off by, by sharing our goal. Uh, so what I have here is a lifespan curve for a population, no specific population. What we have is the age of this population on the x-axis and health of this population on the y-axis. And as we would predict, uh, health generally does go down with advancing age. And when health goes down to zero, where this hits the x-axis, represents the lifespan of this particular population. So I'm sure that many of you are probably familiar with research that's going on to try to maybe delay aging or increase lifespan. And the results of that you know, can be depicted by this red line shown here, indicating a, a lifespan extension. Uh, another goal of many in our field, uh, particularly those who are engaged in clinical research, uh, is maybe less focus on extending lifespan, but instead is focus on improving health so that health at any given age is increased. So this goal is depicted by this green line. Now, as we're continuing to, to learn more about how the processes involved with aging and the processes involved with diseases are intertwined, this presents us with the exciting possibility of extending both health span and lifespan. And that's represented by this purple curve. Uh, many of us do believe that this is an achievable goal. Uh, and for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to refer to this extension of health span and lifespan as healthy longevity. So, you know, one of my, my favorite parts of my job is really getting to know the community and the people who are interested in our research. Uh, I'm, I'm always eager to gain your insights and to learn from you and to better understand your own interests. Uh, but since we're not meeting in person today, what I've done is to prepare just a couple of polls uh, that you can fill out in real time, and we'll give you a minute to, to put in your answer, and then we'll look at the results. Uh, and please keep in mind that there's no right or wrong answer to these questions. It's just a simple way uh, to help us get to know one another a little bit better. Uh, so here's my first poll. So knowing you guys are uh, an engaged audience, I'd like to understand you know, what you believe are the primary factors that contribute to healthy longevity. Uh, so please select one. Uh, Danielle can go ahead and launch the, the poll. Uh, do you think it's A, genetics? Uh, is it your environment? Uh, is it nutrition? Uh, is it lifestyle? Or maybe it's something that's not on this list, then you can select other. So I'll give you a minute to go ahead and, and uh, fill that out. All right, so it looks like uh, a lot of you indicated that lifestyle is a contributing factor to healthy longevity, uh, 44%. Uh, second is genetics, 26%. Uh, nutrition at 17% of you. Environment at uh, 6%. And then there's another six of you that said others. Uh, I wish we were in person. I'd love to know uh, what, what some of your thoughts are on that. So it's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Uh, indeed, there are, you know, multiple factors that contribute to healthy longevity. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that all of these have a cumulative effect. 
Uh, and with, with time and accumulation, this is something that's particularly important for the aging process and for healthy longevity. So what I'm going to do in the next few slides is provide you with uh, some of the, the interesting examples of how we're learning about how these factors contribute to healthy longevity. Uh, so let's go ahead and start with genetics. I know a lot of you chose this one. I think some of the most interesting things we're learning about the role of genetics in healthy longevity comes from research being done on centenarians. These are people who are living to 100 years and older, and people who live in blue zones. These are regions of the world uh, uh, that have exceptional longevity. What we're finding is that centenarians do have protective genes. They're resilient. Uh, and these genes seem to delay aging and offer some protection against age-related diseases and conditions. However, I think an important thing to consider is that research also shows that genes account for less than one-third of your chances for surviving to age 85. And this is true for, disease, for genes uh, that are linked to various age-related diseases as well. So I think that gives a lot of us hope uh, for other things that we can do to promote healthy longevity. So next, let's talk about nutrition. Uh, of all the nutritional uh, factors and interventions, I think one of the things that keeps coming up as being uh, really associated with healthy longevity is a Mediterranean diet. So Mediterranean diets are high in healthy fats that come from sources like fish and avocados and olives. And this has been associated with improvements in insulin sensitivity, your lipid profile, blood pressure, and also lower inflammation. Now, the opposite of the Mediterranean diet is, of course, the Western diet. Uh, and this is one that's associated with obesity, obesity, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol. Now, it turns out it's not just what you eat, but how much you eat also matters. Uh, and I think a really good example of this was a, a study done uh, a few years ago now by a group at University of Wisconsin, where they took rhesus macaques, and for 20 years, they compared rhesus macaques who ate their normal diet, and then half of them uh, had caloric restriction, a 25% caloric restriction. And what they found was that after 20 years of caloric restriction, these animals looked quite different. So the animals who ate what they wanted uh, are shown here in A and B. Uh, you'll see that you know, they're losing some hair, uh, maybe have some signs of kyphosis. But if we look at those that were calorically restricted for 20 years, you see that they look much younger. I'm noticing they look a little bit angrier too, so uh, I don't know what that means as far as a caloric restriction, but I think it's very clear that this does seem to promote healthy longevity. The next factor I'd like to talk about is environment. So I noticed not many people chose this one, uh, but environment you know, refers to the, the geographic location where we live and all of the things that we're exposed to or have access to because of where we live. Uh, so this also has an impact on healthy longevity. And to show you an example of this, I chose a study that looked at longevity across China. So here's a map of China. And the reason I chose China for this example is simply because this country represents a large geographic region with a lot of variety with regards to the environments represented. So what this graph is showing us is the distribution of regions with high human longevity. And this was done by looking at the ratio of older adults over 85 versus over 65 across these various regions. So regions that are redder have higher predominance of people over 85, and those that are blue uh, have relatively lower longevity. And I think what you can already see is there's a distinct geographic distribution of the places with high rates of longevity. And these do tend to be more coastal areas. I think what's interesting is that these researchers then examined various environmental characteristics across China, and they saw a number of interesting associations. So please keep in mind that these are just associations. They don't necessarily reflect causation, but I think there are some interesting patterns. So for example, when they looked at average temperature across China, they saw that these places with higher average temperatures and higher average humidity seem to be associated with these places with higher longevity. Now, interestingly, they also looked at fish production. 
So here are regions in China with high production of freshwater fish, and these are the regions with higher production of saltwater fish, and you can see these are more coastal. And again, you start to see a similar sort of pattern where places where fish are produced and places where there's, health, where there's a higher longevity. Now, looking at the converse of this, they also looked at places with higher meat production, and they found uh, an interesting pattern, which was pretty much the opposite of what we were seeing with longevity. So a lot of regions uh, in red uh, up here, uh, which are blue with regard to longevity. So again, uh, interesting associations. Now, let's talk a bit about lifestyle. Um, so researchers at the Stein Institute uh, have been interested in, this, in lifestyle and its effects on healthy longevity for quite a while. And what I'm showing you here are pictures uh, that are taken from a region of Italy called Cilento. This is a region in southern Italy. Uh, what's interesting about this region is that this is actually where the Mediterranean diet uh, was first described. But also, really, it's a place that's reflective of the Mediterranean lifestyle. Uh, these regions are coastal, uh, adjacent to mountainous regions, so people are walking up and down these small towns. People are growing their own food. This is one of our participants showing us the figs that he's growing. Uh, here are some of the uh, fruits and vegetables coming out of his garden, but also associated with lifestyle, and I, I took these pictures myself, is this sense of community that they have uh, in this region. And we definitely felt very welcome as researchers visiting this beautiful region of Italy. So often when I give these public lectures, the question of what's the most important factor comes up. Uh, and to be honest, I often try to avoid this question. And I would suggest you, know, you talk to your physician or better yet your geriatrician about you know, what are the factors that are most important for you. However, last year an interesting study did come out from Osaka University uh, where they looked at almost 50,000 individuals across Japan. What they found, looking at data from this population, is that lifetime gains were highest for reduced alcohol intake, not smoking, losing weight, and interestingly, increasing sleep. So these factors were associated with a six-year increase in lifespan uh, in Japan. Now, more recently, uh, a different way of looking at this question has led to an exciting new area of aging research. And this starts with the very basic concept that aging is the single strongest risk factor for major chronic diseases and functional decline. So we're trying to understand the connections between aging and disease pathophysiology, and we think this is a crucial step towards developing successful preventative and therapeutic strategies. So in other words, we're looking for those common biological mechanisms that drive both aging and development of age-related diseases and conditions. Now, we've started referring to this field of research as geroscience, which at its goal is seeking to understand the genetic molecular, cellular mechanisms that make aging a major driver of common conditions and diseases of older adults. So I think this is exciting because of the implications of the geroscience hypothesis. I think that has very important implications for healthcare and the practice of geriatric medicine. So again, knowing that aging is a single strongest risk factor for multiple age-related diseases. So Often, when we think about healthcare, we're focused on specific disease treatment, whether it be for Parkinson's, heart disease, hypertension, etc. Now, we are getting better, uh, and we're also starting to focus on specific disease prevention. So, preventing these individual diseases before uh, they, they, they actually uh, come to exist. However, the implication of geroscience is that if we can somehow slow the aging process, then we can prevent multiple, if not all, age-related diseases and conditions uh, at the same time, with even you know, potentially a single therapeutic strategy. So how would we do this? Well, over the past decade now, 
we're starting to understand the cellular mechanisms that are hallmarks of the aging process. And what I've summarized here are some of the ones that have really come to the forefront as playing an important role in, uh, in, in aging. So uh, you'll see that the, there's a number of these, including oxidative stress, inflammation, senescence, some of these you've probably heard of. Now, in my own laboratory, we have a major focus on mitochondria, uh, this area here, as a common mechanism linking aging and age-related diseases. Now, based on the geroscience hypothesis, we're now starting to go beyond identifying how mitochondria differ based on age and disease burden. And you know, our trainees are really now focused on identifying the actual molecules that drive mitochondrial function and potentially discovering molecules that can target mitochondria for therapeutic purposes. So for today's presentation, I'm not gonna go into each of these in detail, but the take home message is that our field is actively developing and testing therapeutics that target these various cellular hallmarks of aging with the goal of slowing the aging process at the cellular level to promote healthy longevity. So there's much more of this on, on this to come, and I think the next few years are gonna be really exciting. Uh, but based on this work, you know, we believe that it's also imperative that we come up with ways to evaluate the effectiveness of interventions that promote healthy longevity. So how are we gonna know what works? You know, can, we come, can we come up with a series of assessments in order to see whether or not a treatment is effective for promoting healthy longevity? And the way we're gonna be able to do this is by first defining healthy longevity in a manner that we can rigorously quantify. Uh, but you know, what should we measure? So again, I'm gonna to turn to all of you uh, with another poll. And, you know, I think it'd be really helpful for us as a field to know what matters to you. And when we evaluate interventions, uh, what aspects of healthy longevity should we be focused on? So, again, there's, there's no wrong answer. Uh, Danielle, you can go ahead and launch the poll. Uh, so what do you think matters most for healthy longevity? Is it physical ability? Is it cognitive ability? Uh, sensory function, uh, including sight, smell, touch, taste, and hearing? Uh, mental well-being, or maybe something else. Uh, so again, I'll give you uh, a little bit of time to, to go ahead and put in your answer, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at uh, the, our results. Well, I see, uh, I guess, pretty equal interest in physical ability, cognitive ability, and mental well-being as being important uh, for, for, for healthy longevity. And I, I really appreciate your, your input here. All right, so again, our goal is to be able to define health span. And what we're doing is we're doing this in a function-based manner. And what we want to have are quantifiable and measurable outcomes related to physical health, cognitive health, sensory health, and mental health. Knowing that all of these contribute to functional independence and quality of life with, with advancing age. So in the next few slides, what I'm going to show you are some of the uh, outcomes and measurements that we utilize uh, in our research and in my lab in order to try to define health span uh, among older adults. So let's start with physical performance. Uh, and all of the examples I'm going to show you are, are, are going to uh, sh uh, show me uh, doing uh, the, the, the assessments. Uh, I do like to be the, the first guinea pig of all of my own studies. Uh, so one of the first uh, measures of physical performance that we look at is gait speed, including fast gait speed and usual gait speed. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a bit. We're also interested in measuring strength, both leg strength using this Biodex machine and grip strength uh, using this handheld dynamometer. Uh, in addition to strength and gait speed, we're also interested in cardiorespiratory fitness. Uh, so this is what's called cardiopulmonary exercise testing, uh, where we're focused on a measure called VO2 max, which is generally regarded as an excellent indicator of cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, when you come to our lab to do these assessments, I want to share that we do prioritize safety. 
personally, I'm an excellent team of exercise physiologists and physicians who oversee these tests. And we also have age and ability appropriate measurements, uh, age and appropriate uh, ability appropriate exercises uh, to, to deliver to you. Uh, in addition to this testing, we do a short physical performance battery looking at other uh, factors uh, that play a role in physical ability, such as balance, again, more gait tests, and also your ability to stand up from a chair. Another aspect of physical ability is activity. So uh, some of our participants are given actographs that allow us to monitor rest and activity cycles. So here is data from one week where we're monitoring activity throughout the day. So this is Thursday all the way to Wednesday. And you can see those periods of time when our participants are most active and also when they're sleeping. After that, we're also interested in body composition. So our participants uh, will do, undergo dual X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA scans to look at bone mineral density, also body composition, looking at the difference between lean mass and fat mass, for example. We're also interested, of course, in your muscle, uh, in, in particular muscle composition the size of your muscle, the adiposity of your muscle. So here's one of my grad students who's doing a muscle ultrasound uh, of my vastus lateralis. Now with regard to cognitive abilities, we deliver uh, really a whole host of different brain games to test how good your memory is, and we're actually interested in multiple aspects of your memory, not just one. Uh, so these are uh, tests we, we deploy using our, uh, an iPad system. I noticed not a lot of people chose sensory abilities, but these are actually really important. So it turns out that your ability to identify odors uh, is really predictive of trajectories of, of, of health uh, and is predictive of you know, um, long-term changes in cognitive ability. Uh, same goes for hearing as a sense that seems to be linked with long-term trajectories of health. We also measure, of course, the visual acuity, since this is a, certainly a sense that we, we all want to preserve. Uh, I'm really pleased to see how many of you chose mental well-being. So this includes outcomes that, rela that are related to your quality of life, uh, social connectedness, also things like loneliness and wisdom. And those of you who have been engaged with the Stein Institute and this lecture series for a while will be familiar with these topics. And, and really, if you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to, to look at some of the previous work from the Stein Institute, including prior presentations from this lecture series. Now, what I'm hoping is that at this point, you're feeling encouraged by this talk and the fact that there's many of us who are dedicated to this work. However, you can probably appreciate that the study of aging and aging itself is incredibly complex. And that's really the reason why we have all these different measures and outcomes that I've shared with you. Now, a consequence of this complexity is that evaluating interventions uh, that are meant to promote healthy aging could take a long time. There are just so many things to measure. Uh, in addition, it, it's going to take some time to find out which of these interventions actually impact human longevity. But what I'd like to share with you is, are some of our efforts to accelerate clinical research into promoting healthy longevity. Uh, we all want answers soon, you know, not 50 years down the line. So one of the ways we're doing this is by developing biomarkers that report on biological age. So biological age refers to differences in overall health status among people with the same chronological age, which is dictated by the date on your birth certificate and can't be changed. Uh, and many of us would argue that your biological age and not your chronological age is what really matters. So can we test interventions that can affect these biomarkers of biological aging in order to accelerate this research. And this is you know, when I think the development of biomarkers can really play a role. Now, uh, just as a, a sidebar, um, I was uh, at a series of conferences in Israel uh, about a month and a half ago. 
Uh, and you know, we I gave some presentations on healthy longevity and, and aging, and some background and what's going on in our field. But it was during one of the dinners uh, at this conference that you know a, a group of us scientists got into some interesting conversations uh, that were not really about science, but were about you know what we think are are what we think our contributions have been so far. What's the thing that, you know, we think we've done that actually is making a difference? Um, and when I started to think about this a bit more, I, I really didn't have a clear-cut answer that evening. But as I thought about it after I came home, I think one of the things that I'm really excited about and proud of as far as the work that my lab has done boils down to this one very small publication that uh, we published, gosh, uh, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and this is a very short paper, just five pages. And what we found in this research is that we could look at blood cells and that by measuring things in these blood cells, we could see that these measurements were associated with how fast community-dwelling older adults walked. So you might say, huh, that's interesting. So you have a blood test that can predict how fast someone walks. Well, it turns out that how fast one walks, uh, one's gait speed, is one of the things that's most predictive of morbidity and mortality in older adults. We think of it as a very strong indicator of one's biological age. So what we're seeing here is really the potential that we have a blood test that can measure biological age. So, you know, what are we actually measuring here? So again, I've already mentioned to you that our lab is interested in, in mitochondria and mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, I think among the cellular hallmarks of aging, uh, this is the one that is most widely accepted. Uh, so what are mitochondria? So mitochondria organelles, uh, shown here, within your cells that are responsible for generating cellular energy. Uh, um, you've probably heard of mitochondria. Uh, they've uh, got a lot of attention in recent years and are often referred to as the powerhouse of the cell. I think we can all agree that energy is fundamental to life. And you know, our cells need energy to function, to build, and in some cases even regenerate. And just to underscore the importance of mitochondria, 90% of the oxygen we inhale, and the nutrients that we eat, like carbohydrates, are utilized by mitochondria in order to make this chemical energy, which is a molecule called ATP. So we very literally eat and breathe for our mitochondria. Now, it turns out mitochondrial function does decline with age, which means that it becomes less efficient at making this cellular energy, less efficient at making ATP. Um, and what we've found is that mitochondrial dysfunction underlies many age-related diseases. So let's not focus on what the individual measurements here are. These are just five different measurements of mitochondrial function, and we perform these measurements on uh, older adults, uh, representative of having normal cognition, mild cognitive impairment, and dementia. And we found that across these measurements, there's a decline in mitochondrial function, even among people of similar ages. So again, supporting that idea that here we have a blood test that's indicative of biological aging. So since you know, this, our initial papers came out, we've really expanded this work to include research into Alzheimer's disease, heart failure, and physical ability and frailty. So we've been performing these tests on frail older adult patients, uh, older adult athletes, community-dwelling older adults, and also our most successful agers. Now, this is just one biomarker, potential biomarker of biological age. And again, since there are so many hallmarks of aging that have been identified, I think some of the most, most promising biomarkers of biological aging are, again, that report on some of these individual factors. So in addition to supporting research, uh, evaluating interventions to promote healthy longevity, I think there are also a number of other applications of biomarkers of biological aging. And I just want to take a few moments to tell you about some of these other applications. So one of the questions that my lab is really interested in is whether these biomarkers of biological age 
can be utilized for advanced uh, precision healthcare for older adults. Uh, so some of the uh, types of questions that we've been asking include, you know, topics related to patient safety. So can we actually predict whether a patient can safely undergo uh, and also importantly benefit from a procedure or intervention based on their unique biological age? Uh, we're interested in utilizing this outcome to improve, uh, improve patient outcomes. So can treatment actually be personalized based on an individual's unique biological age? Uh, we believe there's applications related to disease prevention uh, can we find antecedent age-related biomarkers that we can recognize so that we can uh, employ preventative strategies uh, before disease symptoms arise? And we're also interested in utilizing these for monitoring. So can we use age-related age biomarkers to track disease progression or to track responses to intervention? Now, I think what I'd like to really emphasize with this body of work that we're doing is that biological age is modifiable, unlike chronological age. And this is why you know, we should really be excited about this, this, this era of, of aging research. All right, so in, in uh, the last few minutes or so, uh, I'm going to change tracks a little bit, and I want to talk about why I think we uh, should be investing in aging research and what that means. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware that our population here in the United States is changing. Like back in the 1960s, there are much, uh, a lot more younger uh, people than older adults in the U.S. population. But it's predicted that by 2060, this pyramid shape of our population is going to look more like a pillar, where we have a lot more representation of older adults. This is uh, probably due to a few reasons. One is, you know, the baby boomers are getting older, and also healthcare is improving. Uh, it's been predicted that probably that for the first time in U.S. history, and probably by 2024 older adults are going to outnumber uh, those in our population who are under 18 years old. This is something that we should be prepared for. Uh, after the 2016 census, some people referred to this uh, as the silver tsunami, uh, the fact that uh, older adults are going to become uh, a much, much more predominant uh, number of people in our population. Now, in response to these changes in our population. You know, what is our national investment into biomedical research on aging? So what I'm gonna show you uh, is what's going on at the National Institute on Aging. So this is our major uh, funding source. Uh, national Institute of, on Aging, or NIA, is one of the institutes of the National Institutes of Health. And this is how your tax dollars help to support aging research. And looking at how the NIA budget has changed over the years, you'll see that right around 2016, when we really started realizing uh, that we have a lot more older adults coming onto our population, the budget did increase dramatically. And I think this is really uh, important. Now, while this is improving, and I should note that a lot of this increase in the NIA budget is due to uh, a large interest in supporting Alzheimer's disease research, the, percentage of the NIA budget to the total NIH budget is still relatively small. So historically, research on aging has only accounted for about 4% of the total NIH budget. Now, uh, looking at 2023, and these are the proposed uh, NIA budgets, uh, we're looking at about 8.2% of the NIH budget being dedicated to the NIA. But just for comparison, if we look at other institutes, like uh, the institute devoted to cancer research, they get about twice as much funding. So while all areas of biomedical research are important, uh, I do think that we should start to emphasize research on aging more and more. And I think as a result of uh, historically low funding for aging research, many of us face major, face major challenges when it comes to securing funding to secure this research. 
um, even you know the small percentage of grants that do get funded are often cut uh, in their budgets by 20% at their onset. So because of this difficult funding environment, I think some of the potentially most impactful research, like the ones I've been talking about today, are not getting funded because they're still deemed a bit risky uh, or a bit too early stage. But still, we're hopeful. Uh, we do hope things change and we continue to increase funding uh, in the NAA. Uh, we're also very thankful to those who donate and support our research. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, our goal is to promote healthy longevity so that as that silver tsunami is upon us, uh, we can all surf that wave. So I'd like to end by acknowledging the people in, uh, on my team who do the work that I've been describing today. Uh, these include dedicated staff members, but also a large number of trainees, undergraduate students, graduate students, and fellows who are really going to be the future of aging research. Uh, these are some of the funding sources that support the work that I've shared today. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about our research program, I encourage you to visit our website. Or if you'd like to see uh, what we do when we're not in the laboratory, uh, our students also run an Instagram page. Uh, so with that, thank you very much for your attention, and I'm happy uh, to answer uh, any of your questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Molina, for such a fantastic talk. Uh, we have some great questions coming in that I want to be sure to get to. Uh, so why don't we start with this one? Uh, what are some things we can do to improve mitochondrial function? <laughs> I, I really do love that, that, that question, Danielle. Um, so like other um, hallmarks of aging and biological aging, uh, mitochondrial function is highly modifiable. And this is something that people have been interested in for a while. So there's some work going on uh, looking at, you know, supplements or various pharmaceutical compounds that can, that can improve mitochondrial function. But a lot of that work is really still early stage. Uh, what I'm confident to be able to share is that things like exercise, improve mitochondrial function. Uh, even uh, short bouts of exercise have been shown to improve mitochondrial function uh, quite uh, acutely and, and immediately. Uh, and people often ask too, so what kind of exercise? Well, you know, endurance training seems to be important. Cardiovascular training is important. But I think what's most important is that it's an exercise that you enjoy and, and something that uh, you know, you're willing to, to keep up and, and, and keep doing. So whatever it is you enjoy, uh, those are the things uh, that uh, can improve mitochondrial function, at least with regard to physical activity uh, and exercise. Great. Thank you, Dr. Molina. Uh, we have another great question here that I'm actually wanting to know the answer to. Uh, how can I find out my biological age? Ah, <laughs> um, this is, a, this is a, a really great question. And there's companies now that are coming online that are, um, I'm not sure what the word to use is at this point, but they're claiming that they can you know, tell you what your biological age is. Um, and and uh, you know, some, of the, some of these companies are backed by rigorous scientific research. Uh, but at this point, with so many hallmarks of aging to look at, uh, we're not really sure which one is the best indicator of biological aging. Now, what I can share with you is the measures related to your physical function, cognitive function, uh, sensory function, mental well-being, things that we're measuring uh, in our research and in our laboratory, those are certainly validated measures related to, validated to, to, to biological aging. Uh, and we do have research studies going on uh, where people can uh, volunteer to participate. Uh, and um, have these measurements done, done, uh, done in our research lab. And uh, you can certainly reach out to us uh, to see if you're qualified to participate in these research projects. And as much as possible, we do report your results back to you. So I think our participants do get a lot out of their participation in our research studies. Okay, great. That leads me into um, a question we've gotten a few times now, which is, is it possible to be a participant in your study? So maybe you can clarify how people would go about reaching out to your team to be able to see about their eligibility. Yes, yes. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a few ways. I mean, certainly we have ongoing studies uh, right now. I think uh, one that we're currently uh, actively enrolling for uh, is related to our Nathan Shock Center 
which is a collaboration with the Salk Institute and also Sanford Burnham. And one of the things we're trying to do is trying to define biological aging by creating a cohort of individuals who are representative of the human lifespan. So uh, we're trying to understand you know, what is the normal trajectory. And to do that, uh, we're enrolling folks of different ages, from 20 years old, really with no upper age limit, to come and have all of these assessments done. Um, you can uh, reach out to us. Probably the best thing to do is to reach out to uh, through our website um, and, and, and let, let, let us know that you're interested in uh, the research that we're doing. Uh, and potentially this particular study. But I think what we'd, we'd like to do is start compiling um, you know, the names and contact information of people who are interested in research, uh, because we're really excited about not just what we're doing now, but the studies that we have to come. Uh, and you know, while we're trying to secure funding to do, to do those studies, uh, it'll be great to know that we, there are people in our community who are going to be you know, willing volunteers to engage with us at the Stein and to be participants in our research. Great. Okay, so more questions on biological age. I think this is something that's really interesting to people. So clarifying a little bit about this piece. So what do you mean biological age is modifiable? Does it mean aging will continue to be reversible? And is it uh, and is the choice for individuals to live longer and live better their choice? Great, great question. So again, we have to go back to the difference between biological age and chronological age. So chronological age is not reversible. Uh, we, we are on that track and we're all on that track and we're all aging chronologically. But I think we can all appreciate that people with the same chronological age do not have the same biological age. We all know individuals out there that, uh, that are in their 70s or 80s that you know biologically are, are very young and are very active and and you know you know we're, we have a lot to learn from those individuals so i think you know when when i say it's modifiable i think we all have an opportunity to increase our health regardless of our age and that's really one of the things we're focusing on at the stein is you know what can we do in order to be the best you know we uh, we can be. You know, people uh, often ask me, like, you know, how do I measure biological age? And we, we got that question already. I think the simplest answer is, you know, tell me how you feel. How old do you feel? You know, and uh, I think that in and of itself is really indicative of, of, of your biological age. And, um, you know, again, healthy lifestyles uh, and things like that are all things that can improve our biological age, regardless of our chronological age. Great, thank you. We have so many great questions here. Another one: um, How does access to healthcare influence longevity? Certainly, when when we think about the impact of environment, I think one of the things that's really interesting is the impact of the neighbors, uh, the neighborhoods that we live in. And I think there is really good data out there showing that some of the things in the neighborhoods that impact our access to healthcare, that impact you know, our mobility, that impact really generally our access to various resources, all have impacts on things that are related to healthy aging. So things like you know, quality of life, uh, even, even things related to you know, our physical abilities. Um, so I think it's not just access to healthcare, but access to resources uh, in general that, that, that are important. Uh, this is a, a topic that we're really hoping to, to dig into more uh, in the upcoming year. We have some interesting collaborations with folks that are looking at the impacts of neighborhoods on healthy aging. Uh, and this is the sort of research that can really lead to important policy changes uh, to understand you know, how it is that we as a society uh, can impact healthy aging, uh, even at that neighborhood uh, environmental scale. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, here's another question. Could it be that the accumulation of chronic disease factors takes years to develop, and so aging doesn't lead to disease, but poor lifestyle choices accumulate and manifest in later years? That's an excellent, excellent question. So, again, I think what, what, what this is pointing to 
is what we're realizing uh, as far as the intertwining of biological process, processes that drive aging and that drive age-related diseases. So I'm going to use mitochondria as an example. We know that mitochondrial function goes down with age, but we also have decades of research showing that mitochondrial dysfunction is associated with Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, I mean, pretty much every age-related condition. So as far as what's driving what, I mean, that's a question that I think still remains uh, to be answered. Uh, but I think what's interesting, and I'm going to use Alzheimer's uh, again as an example, is that we're seeing these cellular biological manifestations of aging way before we're seeing disease symptoms. Um, you know, you've, you've probably by the time you know an individual shows up uh, in the clinic with dementia, there could be up to 10 years of neurological damage that have been going on. And, and some of this neurological damage we're understanding now is really driven by the same processes that drive aging, like mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to understand and, and how these things are intertwined with one another. But again, I think the exciting part is that because there's these common pathophysiologies, you know, we think that we can target these specific hallmarks related to aging to really look at therapies for multiple age-related conditions at the same time. Great, thank you. Uh, how has the coronavirus impacted aging and longevity? I think that's something that we're still really trying to, to understand. Um, I don't know if I have a, an answer to that now. Certainly acutely, uh, you know, coronavirus has affected things related to quality of life and how we interact with one another. So these are, you know, important mental health issues that we know are important for aging. Uh, but as far as how it's going to impact uh, longevity, again, this research does take a long time to do. Uh, so that, you know, question does remain to be answered. Now, there have been a few studies that have looked at hallmarks of aging and how viral infections uh, can modify hallmarks of aging. And there we are seeing signs that in some cases, uh, viral load, for example, uh, can, can be associated with an accelerated aging phenotype. So again, that's the cellular level. How this is gonna translate to human longevity, I think time will tell. Great, another great, great question. Does having a positive attitude play a role in having a good biological age? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, like I said, I mean, you're sometimes, you know, you're as old as, as you feel. Having a, you know, a, a positive outlook is going to mean that you're going to be more socially engaged. It's going to mean you're going to be more active. You're going to be more in your community. So I think, again, these things are intertwined with, with one another. Uh, so, yeah, definitely that, that positive mental outlook is, is critical. Great. And this might speak a little bit to the work we did in Chilento. Is research being done on different approaches to nutrition and diet in terms of longevity, for example, whole food or plant-based diets versus Mediterranean diets, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of research uh, into this area. I'm glad you, uh, you, you mentioned Chilento. Um, and I think what's interesting is exactly what, what, what this question is pointing to is that we're becoming more interested in the impacts of whole diets, whereas really there's a lot of previous literature on individual dietary components, right? Um, so, you know, is, is, is this, and that's pointed to, you know, maybe uh, certain foods we should eat that are good for you, uh, things like that. But I think what's more important is looking at diet kind of as a whole and, and looking at, you know, places you know, like the Mediterranean, where uh, diets seem to be an important factor for exceptional longevity uh, in those places. Um, you know, to be honest, research in, into individual nutritional factors is easier to do 
Uh, some of the research looking at whole diets is a bit more complex, uh, but we are you know, actively trying to understand uh, the impact of, of whole diets. Great, thank you. We have time for about two more questions. What is the current thinking about allostatic load as a measure of wellness and disease? Um, that is one of the, um, I guess, potential biomarkers of biological age that some groups uh, are looking at. So I think it's, I'll say it's on the list of things that we're evaluating. Uh, so I'm part of a network that's sponsored by the National Institute on Aging, where they actually have uh, a number of us around the United States who are all developing biomarkers of biological aging in our individual laboratories. And with the help of the NIA, they're really making us work together to start comparing and contrasting how our different biomarkers compare to one another. Uh, so that is one of the biomarkers that's being evaluated. I think what we're seeing is a lot of these are you know, interrelated as well. So it turns out that you know, uh, one aspect or one hallmark of the aging process also plays a role in other hallmarks of the aging process. Um, so yes, that, that, that is uh, on the list of things being currently evaluated. Great. Uh, and what countries have the longest average lifespans? Um, so I remember Dr. Allison Moore had this question uh, in, in one of her polls when, when, when she uh, um, uh, did this public rec lecture. And if I remember correctly, the answer is Japan. Bingo. Yay. <laughs> Oh, she just put it in the chat, too. She did. Okay. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Okay. And then we'll do one last question. Um, in your view, is age best viewed as a disease to be cured or a natural part of life to be improved? So I've, I've, I've seen this debate play out in our field, uh, whether aging is a disease or not. I personally do not think it is a disease. Uh, I think it's a natural part of life that uh, is, is a beautiful part of life. I think it makes us appreciate life uh, even more. When it comes to you know, the practicality of whether or not we should think about aging as a disease, um, some of that boils down to, hey, if we're gonna have therapeutics in the future that are going to target the aging process, well, in order for the FDA to approve a therapeutic, that therapeutic has to be linked to a disease. So, you know, I don't think it's a disease, but hey, if it's gonna help advance kind of some of, the, some of these efforts and the acceptability of new therapeutics that target aging at the FDA level, I mean, call it, call it what you wish, but. Great, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Molina, for such a fantastic talk. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate all that you do to move the field of aging and healthy aging forward. We were so blessed and fortunate to have you here at UC San Diego. Thank you to all of the guests who showed up tonight to see this talk. We're so grateful to have this great community. If you wanna learn more about what we do at the Center for Healthy Aging and the Stein Institute, you can go to aging.ucsd.edu. You'll find out more about our research, our community outreach, and ways to support our work and donate. In the meantime, I want to thank the great UCTV team that were here tonight uh, helping to get the tech support and our wonderful Stein staff members, Sasha and Paula, who helped make all these things happen. Thank you all. It was great to have you tonight. Thank you, Dr. Molina, and have a great night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.